0: privilege to introduce Nathaniel Stamper, who is with us. He's the associate pastor of St. Stephen's, a sister church of ours in New Holland. Many of you know the story of that relatively new PCA congregation in a very old well known building and out of, a, out of a mainline church in New Holland. Some of you know the story of that um, recent uh, change and growth of that church, and we're so happy for him and his wife Kelsey to be here. They have three children Moses, Eden, and Elijah, and uh, live in the New Holland er- area. And so he is going to come and bring God's word to us at this time. Nathaniel. Good evening. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to uh, proverbs twenty two verse six, and I do bring warm greetings from the saints at New Holland, and also uh, not only do I bring greetings, but there 's prayers that have preceded me. My wife told me on the, the drive over here this evening that our five year old son Moses was praying for the, the sermon this evening, and he said in his prayer, "God." Please do not let my father mess up his words tonight as he messes them up at home. So, timely prayer considering the topic tonight about wisely raising children. Proverbs 22, verse 6. This is God's holy word. Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this special time tonight to worship You. We would ask that through Your Holy Spirit, that Your Word would edify us that it would conform us more and more to the image of your Son, not for our sake, but for the sake of bringing you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Mary Machen's son was born on July 28, 1881, in Baltimore, Maryland, and it was right in their home on Mary's knee that her son had learned the Bible. She wrote and taught him Sunday afternoon Bible lessons. Being a good Presbyterian, she catechized her son with the Westminster Catechism, leading her son to understand and embrace Reformed theology. You see, it was in the home that these seeds were planted for her son to one day become a great New Testament scholar. Mary's son, he graduated from Johns Hopkins University and then on to Princeton Theological Seminary. It was in 1905 he traveled to Germany for further study under German theological liberalism. Professors there constantly cast doubt on the the truth of, of Jesus' miracles, His resurrection, the reliability of the Bible, and the essentials of the Christian faith. Distressed, he wrote to his mother Mary and expressed doubts regarding biblical Christian faith. And she replied with this reassurance in one letter, quote, One thing I can assure you of, that nothing you could do could keep me from loving you. Nothing. My love for my boy is absolutely indestructible. Rely on that whatever comes, and I have faith in you too, and believe that the strength will come to you for your work, whatever it may be, and that the way will be opened. Mary's son was not swayed, but he committed himself to a life of ministry, becoming known today as one of the great 20th century defenders of the Christian faith. Mary's son, of course, is John Gresham Machen, perhaps best known for founding Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He started a Presbyterian denomination, and he wrote the classic Christian work, Christianity and Liberalism. And on the day of Mary's funeral, John wrote, quote, My mother seems to have been the wisest and best human being I ever knew. The Lord used Mary to train up John in the way he should go, and even when he was old, he did not depart from it. I believe Mary's testimony embodies Proverbs 22.6. And while John's life should raise concern for us about an increasingly secularizing culture, To lead believers astray, I'm actually more concerned with the problem in here, in our hearts. Because we are at war with sin. Sin in our hearts that's overflowing into our lives and it's leading us astray. And this is the battleground on which parenting plays out. And in all of our relationships. What I hope to see today is that we lead our children in the instruction of the Lord to a person. The person who rescues us from the power of sin and slowly begins to, to give us victory over ungodliness. Of course, I'm speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. However, much of what I'm about to say is not only relevant to parenting, but to all relationships. Today, I want to examine three points. Our calling, our influence, and our ambassadorship. First, our calling, The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6-4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul says that we are to discipline and instruct. Now, don't read our 21st century definition of these words into Paul's 1st century usage. By discipline, Paul is talking about guiding right living. And by instruction, he's talking about providing counsel to avoid wrong or or unwise living. Now let's weigh this with Jesus' words. Jesus says that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. Let's note a few things about what Jesus is saying. First, the Bible makes a distinction between our behavior and our heart. Behavior is both our words and our deeds. The heart in the Scriptures is the real or essential you. The Bible refers to the inner person with referring to the mind, feelings, desire, will, thinking. And it's all summed up with this one word in the Bible, heart. Secondly, behavior flows from the heart. The heart is the steering wheel of every human being. Or to use another metaphor, behavior is like the fruit, and the heart is the root. Jesus says that every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So the root determines the quality of the fruit. So, Paul's imperative to raise children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord must include instructing their hearts. And implied in this is to take great caution against merely disciplining behavior while ignoring the heart. A person's behavior reflects their heart. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son who is only obedient to the father for his own gain. And an obedient child isn't always good fruit from a good root. My wife and I, we have three children Moses, Eden, and Elijah. And one of my children is very eager to please, he's, he's very obedient. And I have another who is, uh, to put it nicely, very independently minded. And this, this latter child once uh, at the dinner table flipped the bowl of jello. And uh, I, I leaned in and I, I looked the child in the eyes and I said, Don't you dare touch that jello. Because I knew what was coming next. And of course, this child leaned forward and, without breaking eye contact, looked at me and began slowly tapping the jello. Now, my, my other child doesn't have the audacity to, to dare disobey me in this way. Yet, guess which child I'm more concerned for? Not the jello-tapper. The the little jello-tapper wears their heart on their sleeve. However, the former child may be obedient because of their eagerness to please, which which could be from the fear of man. And a child whose heart struggles with the fear of man may be obedient to their father, but not out of an awe for their Lord. And that same child, when experiencing peer pressure, may give in from that same root of the fear of man. You see, parents are not therapists seeking to, to modify our children's behavior. Ted Tripp in Shepherding a Child's Heart wrote these words, a change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart is not commendable. It's condemnable. And the call of the parent is to shepherd or instruct the heart of the child. Good behavior from a child can be the result of a heart which loves their Savior, and also good behavior from a child can be the result of a heart pursuing an idol, such as the fear of man. See, some of us, from this perspective, we realize we need to repent over our sins, while others over their good works because they're not truly good. It's the prodigal son and the older brother all over again. Our hearts either worship the the true and living God or idols. So how do we shepherd? Looking at our second point, our influence. If a child like the rest of us responds to the ebbs and flows of life, either out of pursuit of Jesus or pursuit of an idol of our own selfish desire, then we must acknowledge that all behavior is never neutral. All fruit grows out of a faithful or an unfaithful root. And we need to address a child's heart. Now, there could be an objection here. Perhaps you're wondering, well, only God can change the heart, right? Ezekiel says in chapter 36, the Lord says in that chapter, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Or there's Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the question naturally arises, if only God can change a heart, regenerate a heart, make us born again, then how do we shepherd and influence hearts that we have no power to change? by constantly pointing them to the person who can change hearts, Jesus Christ. I cannot save the souls of my children. Only the cross of Christ can do that. By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the counsel of the will of God. And shepherding a child's heart is pointing them to the fountain of life that flows out of a life in Christ, You see, we're not merely correcting and directing behavior, but we're excavating the disposition of our children's hearts, the idols that they are worshiping, rather than the one true God, which is directing their behavior. I don't just want well-behaved children. I want children who love their Lord, Jesus Christ, who seek Him for forgiveness, who seek the power to change by God's word and His spirit. And we influence children by helping them excavate their sin, not just their sins, their heart, not just their behavior, their root, not just the fruit. We help them understand that a heart that is rebelling against Christ is a heart that desperately needs Christ. We excavate our children's hearts to identify the idols that they are serving. And we counsel them to see it. This is training up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Yet I'm convinced that a child learns more from my life than the words that are coming out of my mouth. For example, are we cultivating homes in which forgiveness is sought? Do you avoid conflict in your home? Or are you quick to anger and pursue conflict too quickly? How do you express love through your words and actions? You see, our lives must reflect the character of Jesus and show repentance when our lives don't. Our instinct to love and relate to others is largely socially constructed. Grow up in a home where forgiveness wasn't sought. And it will impact your instincts. You see, training up a child isn't just an information dump, right? It's training by example. Your life has an inescapable, catechizing effect on a child. Our lives are their biggest influence. Let's say I come home from a long day of work. And I'm craving peace and solace, a little rest, so I I sit down in my recliner and I I elevate my feet up in the air. Perhaps I close my eyes while listening to some soothing music. And then suddenly, the sound of my children's misbehavior reverberates through the house as if it's being amplified by a PA system. And in response, I I run to my children in the other room and I I yell at them for fighting and disturbing my peace and I, I threaten discipline if they fight again. What just took place here? First, in that moment, I do not represent the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of my own comfort. At that moment, the Lord has ceased to functionally be the Lord over my life, and instead, I have given lordship over to an idol, my comfort. And our responses to life's trials and blessings are in pursuit of something, either Jesus or an idol. Behavior is never neutral. And I was not pursuing Jesus even though I was disciplining sinful behavior. Remember this. As sinners, we respond sinfully to sin. Rebuking sin for sinful reasons is still being sinful. And second, my children's hearts were not shepherded. Now, of course, they may refrain from from bickering, but is it because that they fear receiving another dose of my anger and wrath? And then rather than fearing God, they respond out of pursuit now of their own idols, the fear of man. Proverbs twenty-nine twenty-five warns us that the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Children need to understand that all safety comes from God, not from placating man. So rather what I've done instead is in using anger to pursue worship of my own God of comfort. My anger now has pursued, produced fertile ground for my children to worship an idol too. The fear of man. Because they want safety. Because they don't want an angry, raging father in the home. I never address the evil root. Sinful, unrepentant hearts full of idol worship. And if We raise children trying to shape the outer man. They will feel the contradiction in every ounce of their being and the legalism in us to which we are utterly blind. Jeremiah 17.9, of course, says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? As we pursue idols, our hearts deceive and actually blind us. Isaiah 44, verse 9, warns that those who worship idols are blind. This is why John Calvin said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. This is how sin begets sin. And in that moment, in that trial of my children fighting, God was giving me an opportunity to see my idol of comfort. And this gracious trial was to bring me and my children to repent but instead we squander these blessed trials because they're inconvenient James chapter 2 says blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted i'm being tempted by god For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desires, and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. God brings these trials to help us excavate our own sin, to shine light on our sin, our idol worship, And temptation is our heart's response to the trial that God has has graciously sent our way to better us. Temptations are the battlefield of the inner man within our hearts. And James, I love this, he says, do not be deceived because he knows that the heart and pursuit of an idol blinds us from our true selves. No, I wasn't worshiping an idol. I I was disciplining my children for fighting while I was trying to relax. You see, our call as Christians, whether in parenting or friendships, is to point people first to the root, their heart, and then secondly, point them to the person who can remake their heart. And This leads us to our last point, our ambassadorship. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, The life of a Christian, whether in friendships, in the community, in our vocations, in our church, in our homes, is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Jesus has broken the power of sin and the idols in our hearts through the cross. And having broken this power and making us a new creation, God is now making His appeal through us. He's shepherding the flock through the flock. He's sharpening one another through the one another's. Whether it's in parenting or the one another relationships, we help others excavate their sin because all behavior tells us something about the heart. Our words, thoughts, actions should be a barometer to help us understand what our heart is pursuing. Jesus says what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. James says desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. So we must fundamentally shift our thinking away from only trying to modify behavior to speaking the truth in love about what a person's behavior indicates about their heart. We speak the truth for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear Ephesians 4.29. We need grace to hear We help others in a particular trial or or sin to understand what their fruit indicates about their root. Christ reconciled us to God by dying on the cross to save us from our sin, and His Holy Spirit is now doing a work within us to change our root. And we, according to Scripture, need others to help because of sin's ability to blind us. And the Holy Spirit illuminates to us the living and acting word of God that Hebrews 4:12 says is sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need them discerned. And it's a group project requiring God's spirit, God's word, and God's people, His ambassadors. So when I am tempted to react out of an unjust anger to my children's sin, to a friend's sin or my spouse's sin. I must remember the words of Paul from Galatians. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. We are ambassadors for, for Christ to restore, to help others excavate their hearts. And yes, we've seen how we too can be tempted to respond sinfully to sin. The older I become, the more God's Spirit shows me the depth of my sin, things that I didn't even recognize about myself, darkness that is exposed by God's Word, and the more I realize how wicked that I really am. I know I'm not alone in this room, right? We are all sinners, saved by grace. So what does this appeal look like as we are ambassadors for Christ? First, using that example with my children and my recliner, at the moment my children misbehave, I immediately sense my frustration growing within me. Strong emotions are always an indication that something is at play in our hearts. What makes us ecstatically happy? What frustrates us? What makes us overwhelmed with hopelessness or depression? What makes us anxious? What drives us to anger or to wrath? And as I sense that intense emotion sitting in my recliner, I should have recognized a threat against embodying the fruit, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And at that moment, I must slow down. Evaluate my heart, my motives. Ask God for forgiveness for placing my comfort above Him. And ask God's Spirit to change my heart and for strength from the Holy Spirit to respond in wisdom and in godliness. Perhaps seek others like my wife for counsel. Second, my goal isn't to modify my children's bad behavior into good behavior. My priority is to shepherd their hearts in their moment of their own trial and temptation. While I demonstrated comfort and safety as possible idols, other idols include security, approval, intimacy, pleasure, recognition, power, control, acceptance, peace, achievement, status, possession. Notice idols are all good things, but we elevate them in our hearts. And then... We worship them and these desires drive our sinful behavior as we pursue them. And approaching my children in their moment of trial and temptation, I must ascertain what happened. The behavior, the fruit. And I must ascertain why it happened. Because I am seeking to identify the root. What idol was pushing God out of the center of my children's heart? Oh, so you you wanted the toy your your sibling was playing with. Did you ask them for it? Why did you steal it from them? Because you wanted it? See, now we're on to something. You violated one of God's commandments. Do not steal because of the desire in your heart for that toy, a desire for possessions. And this desire turned into coveting and envy, which gave birth to the sin of stealing. And the sin of stealing produced anger in your sibling, and anger produced fighting. The root bore its fruit. James says, Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Children, do you understand that you broke God's law to love your neighbor as yourselves? And in doing so, you've not only sinned against one another, but you have sinned against God. You believed your desires were more important than God's laws. Do you think that you should ask each other for forgiveness? Do you think that you should ask God for forgiveness? Notice both the horizontal and the vertical aspects of forgiveness. Do you think that you should thank Jesus Christ for paying the cost for your sin against your sibling and against Him to grant you peace with God and peace with your sibling? With an approach like this, A child not only receives a moral imperative, but an imperative that is rooted in the character and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've not always embodied this approach. When I have, I have seen my children respond in faith. I remember one time putting one of my children to bed and we were talking about something that they had done that night, how it was wrong and sinful. And my child actually asked me, as I was tucking him in, to to lead him in prayer so that he could ask God to forgive him. You see, with this approach, our children or our friends or our spouses, our fellow church members, they see the person of Jesus Christ as someone lovely who gave himself on the cross for our sins. Not a taskmaster. A Lord and Savior. They don't just see a list of rights and wrongs do's and don'ts second peter tells us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness my translation we can do this that we have god's holy spirit in us to bring us what we need for our lives to pursue godliness The next verse tells us that God has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Peter says that God works within us to replace our sinful desires with God's divine desires. That He reshapes us so that we can Learn to desire like Him. That He conforms us more into Christ's image and then we desire like Him and act and speak in ways consistent with who Jesus Christ is. One last thought. I feel bad for unbelievers. And I don't mean this in a prideful way, being like a self-righteous person looking down on unbelievers I love them, but I pity them. Because not only are they missing out with the peace with God that comes through Jesus Christ, but they're also missing out on the life-giving work that God's Spirit is doing in His people to make this sort of change in their life, meaningful change, that goes beneath the surface to the heart. So if you're here today, please consider the wonderful treasures that are yours In Jesus Christ, let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have set such a great task before us that we are your ambassadors, whether it's with our children, fellow church members, unbelievers in the world, that You have made us to be ambassadors for Christ. Lord, we ask that through Your Spirit and Your Word, that You would continue to shape us into the image of Your Son. That we would speak and act in ways consistent with who He is. That our very lives would be a testimony for the grace of the Gospel for us. Lord, By Your Spirit, empower us. Give us this grace to influence others, to raise children well, to influence grandchildren, to influence those in our community, in our vocation, in our ministries. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.